Welcome to Nobody's Perfect, a community built to support, inspire, and empower Colorado youth and families. Our mission is to collaboratively break down stigma and offer solutions to the mental health and well being challenges we all can face. Nobody's Perfect is more than a podcast, it's a movement. The show is powered by the National Alliance on Mental Illness for Arapahoe and Douglas Counties and funded by NAMI Colorado and Kaiser Permanente. I am your host, Jason Hopkins, and joined today with my co-host, licensed clinical social worker, Amy Staley, and our guest, Trace Terrell. Trace is a mental health advocate, peer health educator, and strategic storyteller with a background in adolescent crisis intervention, peer-to-peer support, and youth policy. From middle to early high school, he struggled with suicidal ideation, depression, and other mental health challenges, further complicated by his sexual orientation and rural community. At 14, he volunteered on a youth crisis line, which helped him realize that his mental health challenges were a microcosm of public health issues that affected hundreds of thousands of young people across the world. Since then, he has testified before the Youth Senate Committee on Finance, participated in Mental Health America's inaugural Youth Policy Accelerator, and advised several national social impact initiatives like Ask, MTV, and Active Minds, New Stop, Drop, and Roll for peer support. As a sophomore at John Hopkins University, Trace studies public health and writing seminars and hopes to pursue a career in mental health policy and management. Currently, he researches the implementation of novel therapeutic framework and software meant to make non-clinical mental health care more scalable, cost-effective, and timely for people across the world at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Trace, that's a mouthful. I'm I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. I'm sorry that I fumbled on some of that, but like, wow, you are doing some amazing things, and I am so grateful that you're here to talk to us today on Nobody's Perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for the platform and the opportunity to be here. Well, well, it's our pleasure. I want us to jump right into the conversation and um, really get started and understand more about kind of what brought you to this place today. Absolutely. Yeah. Trace, thank you so much for joining us. I know when we spoke um, on the phone about the possibility of you joining us, I know I was truly inspired by your vulnerability and kind of what has led you to this amazing work that you're doing today. Um, can you talk to us about what interested you in joining us on Nobody's Perfect today? Absolutely. Um, I think for me, a lot of it stems from my lived experience and, and just personal struggles with mental health. Um, like was mentioned, I struggled a lot with suicidal ideation, depression, and some other mental health challenges. And I remember just feeling so isolated and alone. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of teens and young adults in similar positions to mine, um, especially in a rural community that just doesn't talk about mental health. I remember we had um, one clinic, one state-funded clinic for mental health services, and um, everyone went there in the town. So it was like, if I said that I needed help and I needed to go there, then it felt like everyone would know that I was going through a really tough time, and that felt really scary. Um, and I think just knowing that, just knowing that other people... Um, might see my mental health struggles differently than I did. Um, not as me asking for help, but as me being um, weak or unable to um, use my voice or to kind of thrive or excel um, was really harming. Um, and so, yeah, I think opportunities like this um, is all about storytelling and just making aware, making the awareness that I needed um, to really feel less isolated and alone. 
I love that. And one thing I think that's really important for anybody that's listening is the 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 challenges that you faced in addition to the personal struggles you were having, but the fact that you lived in a rural community and to mm. what you just told us about there only being one clinic and you know, maybe not feeling like your your issues were private to you that might be more commonplace or known throughout the community just because there were no other options for you. I think there are a lot of people that are listening that really understand that. I mean, you know, we're fortunate to live in a larger city and recognize that there may be a myriad of resources, but that is not the case for everybody. Absolutely. And I think especially um, in rural communities, especially for young people who already feel like their mental health challenges aren't valid or aren't real or aren't um, uh, kind of urgent enough to require help and support. Um, to be in an area with already less resources and less care, um, it's, it's just really isolating again and again. Um, and so, yeah, I think people in rural communities really face a unique um, kind of challenge when accessing mental health care. And I'm really glad to share that it wasn't um, non-traditional mental health care that really um, helped me save my life, but it was peer support. Um, this idea mm -hmm. of acknowledging that other people and the, the experiences that they have and the, the stories that they have can help me um, kind of take initiative and, and get endurance and everything like that. Um, really, especially with resilience too. Um, that's what really, uh, at the end of the day, saved my life. Well, so if I'm hearing you though, really a lot of what brought you to the place you're at today was built on your personal journey of like kind of figuring things out. Like, of course you had some traditional resources available to you, but it sounds like there were some pretty pivotal steps that you had to take action yourself to support yourself. Is Am I understanding that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think when you don't have a lot of resources, you have to take a lot of initiative um, to do it on your own. And I think that's something that we see in a lot of people's journeys with seeking mental health, uh, mental health treatment, um, is that you know when there are provider directories that aren't up to date, or um, it's hard to get to a clinic, or telehealth isn't available, um, you have to do a lot of the hard work on your own, and that can be really, really tough, um, especially for people who just don't have the time or energy or resources like I did to be able to do that. Right. Well, and, and especially and, given and the fact that. You're, you're, you're not necessarily in the best place trying to figure those things out either. Right, exactly. Sorry, Amy, I'm excited to talk here. No, you're fine, you're fine. And I, I'm hopeful that you could expand for, you know, we're all discussing peer support um, and that's a shared language that we use and it's definitely something that's integrated into the NAMI model. But can you, um, for those who might not know what peer support is or who might be jumping to like, well, of course I talk to my friends, right? Can you talk to us about, the peer support movement and and maybe how it was first introduced to you. And um, I think that would be helpful to clarify for folks what peer support means. Absolutely. Um, to me, peer support means uh, kind of leveraging the lived experience and the insight and wisdom of other people who have struggled with their mental health challenges and are now using it to enact change um, in their lives and their schools and their communities um, and across the nation, really. Um, I was first introduced to the peer support movement um, in high school when I was 14. Um, I volunteered, um, like was mentioned in my bio, with a teen-to-teen -teen crisis line. And in that model, it was basically teens responding to texts, calls, chats, and emails from other teens across the nation um, about different struggles in their lives, whether it was about academic stress, um, kind of like parental challenges, family issues, all the way up to, you know, rape, um, kind of suicide, depression, eating disorders, anything like that. Um, and it was really that experience of knowing that 
for the first time in my life, I, I wasn't alone, right? There were other teens struggling with the same issues and that visibility, that awareness just wasn't something that I had in my community at the time. And so it was really through this kind of like digital space um, and through this like youth peer support framework that I was able to um, kind of kickstart the, the, the help seeking that I needed. Love that. And, and that's so important and valuable. And in the work that we've done with youth, I mean, peer support is such a pivotal piece of support. And often the first line of defense that people go to is a reliance on, you know, their friends and loved ones that really kind of know them and get them. What you're talking about really builds upon that. It's taking that network around, you know, peers that you may not know, but you have some shared or living experience that really brings us back together in a way to support each other. I mean, I've said, in having done this work committedly with youth for more than five years now, you know, I think your generation is gonna change how we see mental health because you all will talk about it in a way that other generations won't. You know, well, go, ahead. go ahead, Amy. I was just gonna say, and if you could talk a little bit because I think Jason and I have also had a lot of conversations with parents about, well, yeah, but like, I want my, I want my kid to come to me or come to a professional for help if they're really, really struggling. And I think there's an important piece to know when we're talking about structured programs like you just discussed, that there, there is support built into that, right? It's not necessarily mm -hmm. just like, oh, hey, I took these calls and I talked to somebody else who was having feelings of suicide and that, you know, then I helped them navigate that. I think there, there's a component that that's going to bring down barriers for youth. Youth are going to feel more comfortable going to somebody who is experiencing something similar to them or a similar age to them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not infrastructure. Um, and I want parents to, to hear, even though we, we know that peers are going to, or um, youth are going to peers and to their friends, that these um, structured interventions also do have a lot of support. Um, and you're not a 14 year old who's holding that by yourself, if that makes sense. Um, I want to clarify that for some of the parents who might have some caution or concern with that. Absolutely. And I will say that, you know, with structured youth peer support programs, there is a lot of training that goes into it. Um, for me, I think I received over 80 hours of training and I received certifications like um, youth mental health first aid, safe talk, suicide alertness, and even assist, which is one of the kind of like nation's top of the best um, suicide prevention training. So there's a lot of support for the call workers and what I think is at the core of these really structured programs, but also in just conversations with um, friends and peers, um, is just this the idea that teens are, one, already talking about their mental health, and two, they're already going to um, their peers for help as well. And so why not leverage what's already happening and just make it um, easier for teens to have the skills to just make positive change, right? Especially in a world where, um, you know, there aren't enough mental health care providers or it's too hard to access, um, you know, navigate insurance and access um, the care that you need. So really just leveraging something that's already happening, something that we've been doing for hundreds of hundreds of years, basically, um, just making it more widely available to teens. I think that's so great that that you really have honed in on some of the intricacies of the system that make accessing care so challenging. So Help me move ahead the timeline. If, you know, at 14, you started this youth peer support um, through the chat line that you were working with. It sounds like it really underscored and highlighted for you some of the frailties of the system. Like what really came to light for you that inspired you to go on to do the work that you're doing today that we want to, of course, talk more about as we move along here? 
Absolutely. And I think mostly what moved along the timeline was just time, really. Um, I always did a shift. It was every week, three and a half hours. And I think just how it added up really made me realize that, okay, these mental health challenges just aren't isolated events. Um, it's bigger than it's just me and then some other kids that are going through some mental health challenges. It really is um, an issue that's affecting a lot of teens and young adults. Um, and I think that's where this lens of public health kind of comes into the picture. Um, and this idea that mental health is truly something, you know, the same as physical health, the same as um, financial health, anything like that. Um, but that it really is a, a much bigger issue. And that's really what got me interested in mental health advocacy was figuring out that, okay, I wasn't alone, but then how do I turn my story? How do I turn my lived experience into something that's positive for others? And the route that I took through for that was kind of through this public health lens, um, realizing that there were interventions that I could take um, through prevention and intervention and postvention to really uh, change the lives of those um, in my school and community. I really, I, again, I'm so inspired. I hate to sound like a broken record here, but you know, I, what you said to us just now, I think is really important, which is NAMI's motto is you are not alone. And I think that that's really a key component to looking at sustainable recovery models is recognizing you're not alone. And then you showing up for that three and a half hour shift once a week, recognizing that there were many others who like you also struggled and there was a place to get support and a place to land and really kind of unpack what was going on. I'm assuming through this process, you've been able to find the supports that that guide you in your own mental health journey and recognize that while you're doing this work to serve others, it's also been fundamental in you being able to help yourself with the necessary supports you need to find sustainable recovery in mental health. Yes, of course. Um, I do like to share that um, get, being connected to a therapist and a mental health professional is also part of my journey. Um, so recognizing that you know peer support can be the entryway for people to get the help that they need. Um, it really is a more accessible framework than kind of just going directly to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, um, especially for, for young people who, again, maybe their only psychologist in their life is their school counselor who's already overburdened with um, a really unmanageable caseload, in my opinion. I think that's the case for a lot of um, school mental health professionals across the country. But um, recognizing that, yes, it can build up. It can be kind of a pipeline for people to seek the care that they need. So um, kind of after volunteering with Youthline, I connected with a therapist and I was in therapy for about a year. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I had really taken ownership over the struggles that I faced and, and was able to, to turn them into something meaningful and powerful for me. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. I feel like, you know, one piece that some of our listeners at times talk about too, and I touched on it a little bit when I discussed parents already, but is how family members can be involved. So um, I do think that we've already named, and, and I think we all agree that oftentimes youth are feeling alone or like it's just them who's experiencing that, um, you know, any mental health crisis or symptoms. And at times that might create some barriers for them communicating with their parents about it or their parents doing how to talk to them. Um, can you talk to us about your journey or supporting others through their journeys in ways that family members um, have been a support or, or can be engaged with youth um, throughout this process? For sure. Um, I think it's 
a couple of things to realize. Um, I think one is that teens spend most of their time either at school or at home. And so at home is a really great intervention for um, families and for caregivers to be involved in the lives of their children. Um, they're young people and kind of realize that, okay, maybe they aren't acting in the same way that they were um, a few months ago. What does that mean for them? What does that mean for me? How do I um, kind of start that conversation with them? Um, I think the other thing is that for parents and, and caregivers and families, especially, it's just realizing that we can start these conversations about mental health early. Um, and that will in turn kind of help young people talk about their mental health openly and honestly later. Um, and when I say openly, of course, I want it to be um, kind of, you know, age appropriate. We're not, we don't have to be talking about these really intense to topics when um, kids are young and when they're, you know, kindergarten, but we can do things like who do you go to when you're really, really upset that someone stole like your math book or um, your crayon or something like that? Right. I think that in and of itself is really instilling these help seeking skills that young people can use later on their road. Um, and just being able to identify a point person in their life who they can go to um, and then kind of realizing that that is a support that they have in their unit. Um, and then I think, too, for adults. Um, and I think this is something that I encountered with my own family too. It's that I'm very close with my family. I have three siblings who are basically like another set of uh, parents for me. Um, but at the time they just, at least in my mindset, weren't able to offer the care that I needed or the support that I really needed in that moment. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I think there's this really big misconception that if you're not able to help, then you are kind of just not doing your job right. I don't think that's the case at all. Everyone has a role to play in someone's mental health journey. And sometimes taking a step back is that role. Um, for my parents, after I told them, I was like, I just, I can't talk to you. Like, I just need to be connected to um, a mental health professional or I need to be connected to peer support. And having a parent that was understanding of that, um, having siblings who just understood that, okay, I can uh, still support, but just be distanced from um, this kind of like direct interaction right. um, is really, really important. So I think just realizing that it's not always kind of about you, um, but to take that, of course, with all the love and care um, and just realizing that, you know, if you can't help a person and what they need, then find someone else who can. You can help kind of connect them or you can be that kind of bridge um, to these other resources that a young person might not be able to be connected to themselves. So if I'm hearing you, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of self-awareness in your journey or certainly did at some point and recognizing that, you know, maybe your parents were not the first line of go-to support and maybe you needed something that was um, maybe more private or more skilled maybe. at assessing what you were dealing with. Um, I think that's really important. And what I take away from that, if I hear that differently, that I say all the time is people can only meet you from their own place of experience. And often if mm -hmm. we go to somebody expecting that we're going to share something with them, I think as humans, our inclination is to want to fix things for people. And it sounds like you had to look enough ahead to recognize that maybe your parents didn't have the skills or the tools at that specific moment, or you weren't comfortable with them, you know, relating with you in the way that you needed to be related to at that point. That I think really, if I'm a parent listening, take some pressure off me and recognizing that while I may have a responsibility to meet my child where they are, which could look like getting them professional support or getting them plugged into places of help, it doesn't mean that I have to have the answers or fix it, right? Absolutely. Um, I think especially that touches on this idea of like intergenerational differences and how we talk about mental health. 
Um, and just kind of as like a thought exercise, like as an adult, would you go to your child to talk about um, these really big financial challenges that you might be having? And of course, like the, the young person can serve as a, a really great um, ear to just listen and to, to offer support and give hugs and everything like that. But um, also recognizing that maybe this challenge isn't something that can be best addressed by, um, you know, a family member. And then who can I be connected to um, in that? And I think for young people too, like, um, at least with the adults that I've talked to, we just grew up in very different times and talking about mental health. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very open with my journey about suicide and depression, but for some other people that seems, you know, um, so, so stigmatized and so, um, just, just untalkable, right? Um, right. you just really wouldn't really talk about that. And so it's just realizing that there's of course like a time and place, but there's always a role that you can play in being like a, a beacon of hope or a connector to help. I love that. Well, I thank you again for, for your vulnerability with that, because I, I think you're right. There's definitely some generational differences with that, but also different comfort um, levels for people depending mm -hmm. on their personalities. And I do think that there's something that's really valuable and important when others can see somebody who's experiencing something similar to them and what they're doing with that. Um, and so I really, truly appreciate that you're utilizing your vulnerability or your life experience and being vulnerable with it to impact others. And um, I just, again, want to applaud that. Um, you know, I have a lot of questions that I would like to dive into about some of the work you're doing now, but one piece we haven't touched on um, that I, I think you mentioned when we spoke on the phone and also um, in your intro was not only was your experience and exposure with mental health, um, something that kind of impacted or you felt isolated with, but also your sexual orientation and how that maybe has played a little bit into your journey. Um, could you share a little bit about kind of how you felt isolated or how that might've impacted your process as well, please? Of course, yeah. Um, so I came out as gay, I think around 16. Um, and it was probably one of the hardest things that I've ever done. It contributed a lot to my mental health challenges. I um, like to point to the example of me just laying in bed. And this, I think, was in middle school. But I laid in bed every single night and I just wished to wake up straight. Um, it was the one thing on my mind. It was the one thing that I thought would solve kind of all the challenges that I faced. And I think for a lot of young queer people, um, that's also the case. It's just wanting to be something different in the hope that it will make your life better. Um, and I think we kind of see that uh, struggle even through the data, right? Um, LGBTQ young people have um, some of the highest rates of depression and anxiety um, and also some of the highest um, kind of rates of suicidal ideation and also um, suicide attempts too. And so it's realizing how do we intervene in that and to make uh, young queer people feel um, kind of supported in their identities, supported in um, accessing also, I think culturally competent care comes into that as well. Um, but also like, how do we make sure young LGBTQ people are supported in what they need? Um, and that means kind of having LGBTQ um, visibility and awareness, um, especially in the mental health care field. So it's like having um, a queer therapist, a gay therapist, um, having that option available at least. Um, and also, you know, awareness in school. When we talk about mental health education, I think it's really important to teach about LGBTQ mental health. Um, just realizing that there are disparities that exist um, across these different populations and groups. Um, and that it does require kind of additional work in that. 
Um, I will say now that kind of as someone who's been out and uh, gotten the visibility that I needed, um, I don't think anything has been more impactful for me than kind of just making other friends too that are also gay um, and just kind of having them in my in my team and my corner. Um, that's something that I really needed when I was a young person I didn't have. So um, a lot of my work now just kind of focuses on how do we, again, empower teens and young adults who are already having um, these really similar experiences, in my opinion, but also these similar identities who can kind of connect to people, kind of bridge that gap um, where mental health care professionals might not be able to. Um, I think a, a big challenge is that there are therapists for these communities, but they don't always look like the communities that they're serving, or they don't always speak the same language, or they don't always um, just have the same life experience. So when you're leveraging um, kind of from the bottom up, right, so that's kind of like a top level as a therapist going to a community, but when you're leveraging kind of just the community itself and the the experiences and the identities that exist there and you're empowering them with all the skills to talk about mental health um i think we see we see really great results i i again i want to applaud you for being authentically who you are i think it's it's just it's incredible that you're open and honest about what's brought you to this place that you're at and the thing that i really reminds me of so many conversations I've had with teens and and you have been open about sharing a pretty traditional path of seeking therapy and that being kind of a cornerstone of your support system. You know, I hear from young people all the time, I tried therapy and it didn't work. And what I think is so important in what you just shared with us is recognizing that if there are unique challenges that you are facing or dealing with, recognizing you probably need to find therapeutic supports of someone who has credentials and experience to help guide you with the things that you're challenged by and also understands where you're coming from. And if you've gone to a therapist who isn't a good fit, it just isn't a good fit. And that doesn't right. mean that all therapists are bad and it's never going to work for you. I mean, I hear that a lot and I would love your insight on when you speak with teens, do you see a reluctance from teens to really recognizing that finding a therapist is kind of like dating and to find somebody that you're going to sit down and be vulnerable and open with and kind of bear your soul to, it's important that it's a good fit, right? Of course. Yeah. I think I see this a lot um, in like the higher education college space too. Um, it's a lot of my peers are kind of trying to find therapy are um, kind of in their own help seeking journeys. And a really big struggle is, of course, not feeling connected to their therapist or their mental health professional in any way um, that makes them feel kind of supported or comfortable in sharing their story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of young people who try therapy for the first time, and they realize that it doesn't work. And there is, you know, of course, that the kind of frame of it as being dating, I totally agree with that. Um, I think for young people, especially, we need to remind them that it is okay to um, realize that it maybe isn't the best fit and that you can seek another option. Um, I kind of, in at least when I was seeking help, what it felt like is that once you're connected to a therapist, like all your problems should become better, but that's just not always the case. Um, sometimes you have to switch therapists or, you know, I have a friend who was getting therapy in one state and then is at college, so they can't receive therapy because of, you know, like different policies around like state. Yeah, I didn't even know all about that. Um, but it's just a really uh, kind of nuanced thing to deal with as a young person in college when you're already dealing with classes and with everything else like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think if young people are listening, the one thing I would stress is that it is really important to um, 
one, find a therapist that works for you. And then to also have a backup plan in case um, there is something that uh, arises that, you know, prevents you from seeing that same therapist or something like that. Um, it's not always going to be easy, but um, there is support out there if you're able to find it. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad that you helped me make the connection there. Uh, before we jump into the incredible things that you're doing today, I want to ask a really random question here. In, in being that you've been in this system a while now, do you think we're making progress? Are we improving? That's a loaded question for it sure. It's a loaded question. Um, Feel free to answer it however feels aligned for you. But, you know, I, yeah. I'm sure from your perspective of being so in it, do you think we're really making progress? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of talk about the pandemic and its effect on the kind of the progress that we have been making. Um, and if anything, I think the pandemic just exacerbated the struggles that were already there. For one, sure. um, I think we're really struggling with a lack of mental health care providers. Um, there are just really unacceptable shortages across the state, even in um, my state in Oregon. Um, I think they're just, I think it's like one like psychiatrist per like, 10,000 people or something like that, um, which just obviously isn't manageable. It isn't um, acceptable. And I know that's the case. I think there's some where it's even like 40,000 or 50,000. And we just, like, that's just can't happen, right? We really need to invest in programs that um, make it easier for, you know, mental health care professionals to kind of enter the field and to, you know, get schooling and everything like that. Um, I think in terms of like young people, what, I mean, of course, there are a lot of challenges like the mental health care, you know, shortage and everything like that. Um, but what brings me a lot of hope is just seeing other young people really um, kind of putting the hard work in. They're on the front lines doing this work. There's other young people who are on crisis lines and responding to um, the needs of their friends and peers. And there's also young people kind of in schools and, and communities really just um, spearheading these different initiatives to support um, just health and well being for everyone. And so I think. Progress should be looked at in terms of how are we kind of equipping the next generation to deal with these struggles in the future. Um, I think there are a lot of young people who at least now feel comfortable talking about mental health. Right. And um, I think we are in a skill building phase where a lot of young people are kind of uh, gaining like advocacy skills, storytelling skills, um, everything like that. So I, I don't know. I think we are making progress. I think that progress stems a lot from uh, the younger generation, but there's also, you know, a lot of new bills being introduced and things like that. Um, there's a lot of great work happening on the peer support front, which I'm really excited about, um, making it easier to have kind of like federal recognition of this really, really important um, kind of like fields of, of mental health care that can really just supplement what's already going on and kind of address any gaps that are there. Um, but yeah, there, of course, will always be work to do. I don't think we'll ever have a completely perfect mental health care system. But I think the more that we can kind of leverage young people and this kind of like holistic idea of what it means to support mental health, right? Um, and that it's not something that is only like you either receive medication or therapy for it. Um, you can receive education for it when you're in primary school, when you're in secondary school, something like that, um, and really be able to to make improvements in your mental health uh, down the road is really important. So short answer, um, yes, and long answer, kind of. <laughs> well, and, and, and again, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but I think the thing that you validated beautifully is we have a lot of awareness about what the problem is, how great the need is, right. 
and the fact that we need to do more and like what we currently have is not enough. Like that feels really tangible and realistic. But you also talked about what's being done to support peers in this model. And frankly, based on what we talked about earlier in this conversation, peer support in this way for young people was never actually a thing because we didn't talk about it. So it's yeah. while we're kind of on the advent of it, and why I always say I think young people are going to change how we see mental health. It is by the very definition of what you just talked about, because you all are talking about it in ways that we never did before. So I, again, I'm so inspired to hear that. But the one thing that I did hear, which really resonates with the work that we're doing with this Nobody's Perfect community, is really figuring out, while there are so many young people creating really great initiatives or programs that support young people, there still is really not a really great hub that pulls all of these things together to make this a community. You know, you right. see segmented in pockets, whether it's regional or statewide, you know, but there's nothing that kind of pulls this together. And that's what we're really focused on building here is kind of the next iteration of the community that we're building. But um, I, I think um, I am hopeful that we are making progress and moving forward. But again, to, to your words, I mean, the problem is it's big. You know, well, there's, not a, there's not a one size fits all solution and we're coming up with new solutions. We're literally building the plane and after we're in the air. And I'm sitting here thinking of, you know, listening to your response to that, which I think was was eloquently put and, and honest, right? We do have um, a, a lot of gaps and lack of resources. And um, I think I've discussed several times, all of us on the treatment side don't love that either, right? Nobody feels good about it. Excuse me, but I'm curious, you know, I really felt your passion come through when you were talking about that. Is, is that actually part of what drove you to, to go towards more of a public health model versus the treatment side, right? Because everyone has their own journey with mental health and things they do with that, right? And some choose to engage in ways that they can be a part of using their voice, which you, you're doing and you have done. Um, to advocate for change. Um, some might go into direct practice. Some might say, you know, I can't um, engage in e any of these ways, but maybe I'll donate money towards a cause, right? Everyone has their own journey and that's just fine. I'm um, I'm just curious, could you talk us through kind of what did drive you to public health? Because what I was hearing from you, it sounds like part of, part of what has brought you there is your passion for this and um, what you saw in the system. Absolutely, yeah. I think... It was from volunteering, of course, doing those three and a half hour shifts every week. Um, I loved it. And I'm actually hoping to volunteer at the Trevor Project soon. So it is something really close to my heart and something that I, of course, value because I think, of course, that just direct connection is so important and so powerful um, for both the caller and the the, the responder, too. Um, but I think I realized that I was like, I, I just want to be able to make a difference that affects more than just, um, you know, the lives of like one or two people, right? Um, you know, therapists already take on so much work and there's already, you know, just a lot there. But um, for me, it was realizing that my mental health just couldn't, um, it didn't have enough space to be able to, you know, offer support to everyone who was going through challenges. Um, let me, let me think about this for a second. Sorry. Um, there's no, we're, we have time. You're good. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, okay. I think I'll just restart because I got off on the wrong foot there. Okay, um, do you want me to re-ask? Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. 
So that's fine because I felt distracted too. There's a garage door happening. I was like, Jason, the garage. <laughs> I feel like I just fumbled. So, um, all right, we're going to reset starting now. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. No, Trace. So in listening to you and your response to that question, I could just really hear your passion and hear that you are able to acknowledge, yes, there are changes and yes, things have shifted and um, see the strengths in the, in the peer movement. However, also kind of some opportunities for us to still look at this. And I'm curious if that passion and your experience is part of what drove you to um, public health. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, I, I loved volunteering with Youthline. I loved doing my weekly shift and it is something that I hope to continue. Um, hoping to volunteer with the Trevor Project soon, which is a um, suicide lifeline for LGBTQ young people. So it is something really, really close to my heart. But I think what I realized in volunteering was that one, of course, this is a public health issue that's affecting a whole lot of people. Um, but also that the work that I was doing could be a really great um, kind of pipeline into mental health in general. Um, there aren't really ways to kind of uh, shadow like therapists or other mental health professionals to get exposure into the field. And so it was really volunteering on the crisis line that I kind of ruled out that I didn't want to do um, kind of like direct practice, but I still wanted to be involved, right? Um, so that kind of led me down the advocacy route instead. And fortunately, um, Youthline, which is the, the teen line that I volunteered with, they offered kind of like speaking engagements and, um, you know, you were able to teach uh, different lessons about mental health and kind of local schools in the county. Um, so those were all things that I leveraged and used and um, really helped me kind of realize that, okay, if I couldn't be involved in mental health in the direct practice, then there's still like this whole other ecosystem of careers and and, and positions and um, jobs that are still kind of working towards the same goal, right? Um, for me, my goal when I wake up every single day is just making sure that young people um, don't feel the same way that I did when I was really going through some of my toughest times. And so for me, the way that I kind of get involved with that is through policy work and through um, kind of making these really systemic changes on a ground level, um, but also realizing that, yeah, there are different ways. There's education. It's making mental health education available in school through um, you know, becoming a teacher or um, a curriculum writer or something like that. Um, but also, you know, there you can go directly into the government too um, and kind of have that direct exposure making programs for teens. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the kind of public health aspect that came into um, into play with, with my journey and kind of my, my future career prospects was really just realizing that mental health isn't just direct practice. Um, it's not just therapy or psychiatry. It's also... Um, and I think in a large part about public health, about the ways that we um, prevent people from going to the emergency room for, you know, a suicide attempt in the first place, or um, how we make sure that people have enough awareness and visibility for uh, the challenges that they're already facing. So, yeah, I think it was just being exposed to this wide range of fields um, through kind of this really structured framework that I was able to participate in. Well, and I go back to your incredible self-awareness. Like, I don't know how many people go through school to become a clinician to realize they don't want to be a clinician. Like I went to school to be an interior right. designer and all it took was me working for an interior designer, you know, over a semester to realize I absolutely don't want to do that job. Um, right. you know, so I admire that you really are focused on the bigger picture, which really ties back to what's so important for us here. Like while Amy provides direct care, you know, we're also focused on the bigger picture of 
how do we create a system of support so it's not just isolated to the person that has access to us that can get them plugged into resources it's you know the person sitting in rural america that may have no idea where to begin that doesn't even know there's a path available that you know we can make it clear and and easy and accessible for them to get plugged into support resources they need in really critical times and it's going to take more people like you like us doing that work to really recognize that you know while we have made tremendous progress there is still there are miles to go of course well and i guess you know with that segue could you talk to us a little bit i mean you've done um several phenomenal things and are part of some bigger projects so whether it be mental health america's youth policy accelerator and testifying for the u.s senate committee um i know you're doing some larger work through some things at john um, hopkins and kind of on campus stuff tell us a little bit about what work you've been doing and um kind of where where things are at for you today yeah um i think i'll start out with ask um, ASK is a kind of a, a social impact initiative through Active Minds and MTV. Um, Active Minds is one of the nation's kind of leading suicide prevention nonprofits um, on, I think, over like 500 college and uh, high school campuses across the country. Um, it's really dedicated to just making, you know, education and awareness um, of mental health challenges, you know, widely known and uh, um, kind of seen on campus for, for uh, students. Um, and so one of the, the really big goals of Active Minds is to make sure that peers feel connected to their peers, right? It's really leveraging that peer support space. And in the past, they had a training called VAR, which was Validate, Appreciate, Refer. And it was this really great framework for training people who might not have any exposure to mental health um, to how to, you know, show up for a friend in need. And it, you know, it received so much great feedback that it they just kind of considered, um, Kind of reevaluating it, how to make it more um, accessible to people kind of outside of the active mind space too. Um, so if your school didn't have an active minds uh, chapter or um, kind of affiliation, how would you still be connected to this really great idea that is bar or um, just this kind of like three step framework to stop, drop, and roll, right? For how to show up for a friend in need. Um, and they kind of partnered with MTV and they came up with ask. So acknowledge, support, keep in touch. Um, it's kind of the revamped um, uh, uh, version of VAR, um, and it's so far made um, a really great impression on all the people that we've had the opportunity to share it with. Um, there's been some really great um, kind of brand partnerships with like TikTok influencers and things like that to really just connect to young people um, and make sure that they know that it's just three easy steps to show up for a person in need. Um, I think too, a, another big part of ask has just been, how do we share it with people in a way that is memorable, right? Um, I know there was like dare in the, I don't even know, when my parents were growing up, I know dare was a really big thing. And it was an acronym that of course had a lot of great intention behind it. Um, and I think a curriculum too, but it just wasn't able to be um, sustainable or kind of long-term. And so a big thing for ask is figuring out, okay, how do we translate that to, um, kind of like a, a physical object or kind of a, a medium to um, connect with teens. And uh, they actually decided to use friendship bracelets for that. So um, I know that was a really big thing with like Taylor Swift's, um, yeah. you know, tour friendship bracelets, um, but also leveraging that idea that it takes a lot of time and care to make a friendship bracelet. Um, but it's also, you know, a reminder of 
um, someone caring about you, someone seeing you, someone hearing you and all everything that's going on. And so um, if you've seen friendship bracelets going around that have ASK on them, know that that's um, kind of part of this initiative and, and part of what we're trying to um, expand as well. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the big statistics from MTV was that uh, I think it was 70% of young people want to help their friends, but they just feel unprepared to do so. And how do we bridge that gap, right? It's by making something like Ask a Stop, Drop, and Roll um, just widely widely available, widely known. Um, and it's just three simple steps, right? Like it's nothing that you have to spend like an hour training on or something like that. It can be done in like 20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes, even when you just see it on your phone, right? Um, so yeah, Ask has been just phenomenal. I know we have plans to create like a digital training um, for young people to kind of access online that also doesn't um, uh, kind of in, be impacted by kind of like internet access challenges or anything like that. But yeah, it's been an incredible experience so far. How did you get involved with that? I mean, it sounds like an amazing project. Yeah, I worked a lot with Active Minds um, in high school, kind of after I was, you know, getting involved in the advocacy space. Active Minds was kind of my first um, endeavor into mental health advocacy. And um, they had an advocacy academy kind of program where I learned all of these different skills to kind of uh, create like a campaign in my school to talk about mental health um, and to really make sure that our mental health education reflected the needs of all of its students. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of in being connected to them, I was able to uh, be connected to ASK, which has been really great. That's fantastic. I, I again, I'm, I keep saying it. I'm so inspired. I love what you're Thank doing. You. Um, so you're in your sophomore year. Um, what, what do you have on the, the, the planning schedule for the rest of the year? Like what's kind of the, the most important thing that we want to create awareness around right now that supports youth and mental health? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. Um, I think in all the work that I've been doing, um, it's been focused a lot on youth engagement and youth mobilization. So again, we have all these young people who are doing this really awesome work, but we don't, of course, have that hub um, to center it or to kind of extend it into um, their adult years. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of youth activists who aren't able to continue their work when they turn older, um, just because, you know, it's, they have to go into work or, or something like that, or they're just too busy with school. Um, so it's figuring out how do we mobilize youth in a way that is sustainable for a really long time. Um, and I think th the big thing there is just making our decisions, making um, opportunities like this more available to young people. Um, and it's really just like rethinking the way that we think about like youth involvement, I guess. Um, you can bring a young person in to be, you know, at a um, focus group or just kind of like a feedback session or something like that. But is their words and are their stories really uh, translated into change, right? Is is it something meaningful happening afterward? Um, and I don't think that's the case for a lot of things right now. So um, one of the things that I've been challenging um kind of the, the people that I work with and the groups that I work with is to just recognize that the more that you embed youth into your work, um, kind of as, you know, like a, as an equal, right, as a, a co-worker or something like that, as someone who can, you know, evaluate data or can help make financial decisions or something like that, um, the better the results will be afterward, just because there's a youth 
um, who kind of, again, knows the struggles, who has that lived experience, who is, you know, experientially qualified um, to just offer um, a lot of their insight and wisdom. Which is, you know, so resonates because, I mean, we've always called this a For Youth by Youth initiative. I mean, it started literally pre-pandemic talking to youth about challenges that they were facing with their mental health on a podcast we previously had called Teen Talk. And frankly, you know, I had never worked with youth prior to that and was, again, so inspired by what you're saying and just the the self-awareness and the passion and the energy that comes around, not just supporting myself, but supporting others for this greater cause. Like I, I can't think of another, another thing in my lifetime. I mean, I certainly can't recall getting together with my friends to talk about things that deeply impacted us growing up. Um, and I'm a generation, you know, behind you or ahead of you. And, um, I just think it's really amazing that we're at this unique time where not only will we talk about these things we are challenged by, we are actually taking steps to figure out how do we fix it. So again, I admire what you're doing. I am inspired by what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's so important and necessary, Trace. Thank you. It really is. And I feel like, you know, even earlier when I was asking about your passion and kind of what drove you to public health and how you commented that you, you realized that you were going to go a different route than direct practice. I, I want to just name again, I think there are some people that um, shame is maybe not the right word, but have this feeling of guilt of like, well, that's what I would want to do. Or, and I, I, I want to just name for everyone and, you know, kind of echoing what you've said, like there are ways to be involved that don't have to be related to direct practice. And right now, because there is such a shortage, I truly feel like some of these initiatives are equally, if not more valuable of how are we accessing everyone or finding different entry points for people? Um, because mm -hmm. for some therapy might not be the answer for some, um, they might not have access to a therapist. So how are we reaching those people? And I, I just really want to applaud the work that you're doing and how you turned your life experience into um, trying to have a voice or trying to make sure that people have their own voice and have access to that. And I think that's just beautiful. And I, I really um, admire what you're doing. So thank you. Um, you know, Jason, I'm not quite sure on the time. Do we, should I dive into our last question or is there anything? Yeah, I think so. I mean, unless there's something really compelling that we, we feel like we've missed, but I mean, I'm, I, you've left me with a lot to consider, but again, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. You know, one piece that we kind of talked about briefly is um, some new work that you might be a part of. I don't know, Trace, if you want to touch on that before I dive into the last question, but is there an, um, anything else you want to tell us is coming on the horizon for you? Of course. Yeah. I'm actually really excited to share that I've been accepted to NAMI NextGen. Um, so I'll be part of the, it's kind of like a 10 member advisory group with NAMI National, um, really making decisions on kind of like a national level and guiding their work um, to make sure that it is youth centered and, and youth focused and that there is um, kind of that, that input there. When I talk about embedding NAMI NextGen is the, the perfect example of it. Thank you. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations on joining Thank us. Thank you. Um, so we always wrap up the podcast with one final question. So Trace, if you could please tell us, what does nobody's perfect mean to you? Um, I think nobody's perfect means realizing that we all have our own struggles um, and that we all come from a different place in life, that we all have 
um, these challenges that really, really impact us. Um, Hey, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Let me think real quick. Yeah, you really end on a zinger there. Um, no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> you just gotta give you one one curveball, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think. Okay, I think I'm ready. Um, to me, I think nobody's perfect means I think exactly that right that we all have our own challenges that we all um, go through our own um, struggles with mental health but also realizing that there is a lot of uh, support that can be there and I think for me it was realizing that other people weren't perfect either um, that helped me get the care and support that I needed um, so when they say like nobody's perfect kind of use that as a place of uh, strength and, and support and um, truly empowerment to, to kind of seek the care that you need. Um, I think it's through all the imperfections that we um, are able to really grow and, and, and arise to the occasion as humans. That's a beautiful response. And, and really, when we were planning that, that name, Nobody's Perfect, really, if you think about it in the way we're using it, it implies everybody. So there is a connection, there is a community from that. I want to thank you again for being here today. I mean, your story is inspiring. I cannot wait to see what comes next for you. I mean, whatever it is, I know it's um, for the betterment of our society. Um, and for everybody listening, thank you for being part of Nobody's Perfect, a community dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and empowering youth and families. We hope you've enjoyed this transformative conversation today. Together, we're dismantling stigma and providing solutions for the mental health and well being challenges we all can encounter. Be sure to join us every other week on cozy101.com backslash imperfect or your favorite streaming platform to continue embracing our shared human experience. If you haven't already done so, please follow us at Nobody's Perfect Community on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, and it's been a pleasure having you here. Stay connected, stay inspired, and remember, Nobody's perfect because perfection isn't real. Your story is. Until next time.